Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Keys for SLPs. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Dr. Machine Namazi is faculty and director of the School of Communication Disorders and Deafness at Kane University. She received a grant from the New Jersey Autism Center for Excellence and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. Dr. Joanne Kasha is a faculty member at Kane University. She received a grant from the New Jersey Autism Center for Excellence and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. And now for a little bit about our guests. We are honored to welcome two guests today, Dr. Joanne Kasha and Dr. Mashid Namazi. Dr. Joanne Kasha is a faculty member at Kane University in Union, New Jersey. Dr. Kasha's clinical experience has focused on pediatric language, specifically autism spectrum disorder. She is the co-founder of the MA and SLP program at Kane, as well as the co-founder of the new NeuroAlly Specialization Program. Her research experience has explored executive function skills and empathy in ASD. Dr. Kasha is actively involved in professional service as a Council of Academic Programs and Communication Science Disorders board member and a Council on Academic Accreditation site visitor. Dr. Mashid Namazi is a faculty member and executive director of the School of Communication Disorders and Deafness at Kane University. Dr. Namazi is the co coordinator of the NeuroAllies program at Kane University. She is an ASHA certified multilingual speech language pathologist with over 26 years of experience in various clinical settings as a clinician and clinical supervisor. She is fluent in Farsi, French, English, and Spanish. 
Dr. Namazi teaches doctoral masters and undergraduate courses and conducts research in multilingual and multicultural aspects of speech, language, and communication development and disorders, as well as interprofessional practice and autism. She is the recipient of numerous awards, grants, and scholarships, and has published multiple peer-reviewed articles. She has presented her work in Europe, Canada, and the United States. Welcome, Dr. Namazi and Dr. Kasha. We are so happy to have you both here today to talk about neurodiversity. This is such an important topic in our world today, and we appreciate you helping SLPs understand neurodiversity, as well as apply the approach to assessments and intervention. It is vital to our work as SLPs to understand the perspective of neurodiverse clients. Thank you for being here to share this information. Thank you for having us, Mary Beth. Well, we are so pleased that you're here. So let's get started. What is neurodiversity and what drew you to it? Well, the core of neurodiversity is that it is considered a difference and not a disorder. So individuals who are neurodivergent simply have, as Dr. Barry Present would say, they're uniquely human in that they essentially think differently as opposed to having a disorder that needs to be treated. That is really at the core of it. And in terms of what drew me to it, Dr. Kasha and I have spoken about this often in that the terminology and the framework and the term neurodiversity and all the different terminology that goes along with that wasn't all that familiar to me until a couple of years ago. However, when I think back to how I was trained in my master's program, when I think back to you know going to Amy Weatherby's workshops and conference presentations and Dr. Prezant's conference presentations, I feel like my master's mentor, as well as these other individuals that I just mentioned, I think what they were saying was somehow, you know, had seeped into my brain. And so my approach to working, most of my work has been with children, regardless of what their label was that they were given in terms of a diagnosis, was always looking at that person as an individual and really looking at their strengths and seeking mostly for me to understand them first and foremost, as opposed to having them join my agenda or come into my world. And so that's really how I was trained. So I think what drew me to it is that it just made sense for me because that's how I had always interacted with all of the populations that I worked with in my clinical work. And I think as someone who it has is so interested in different cultures and people who speak different languages I think that also is what drew me to neurodiversity because I was always interested in really looking at the individual first and then understanding them. And let's talk about your background a little bit. So you are originally a native of Canada. Is that correct? I actually was born in Iran. I moved to Canada when I was nine years old. So I always say that my country of origin is Iran. My country of citizenship is Canada. And hopefully in a couple months, I'll be a U.S. citizen. We'll see what happens if I pass the test. (laughs) Well, congratulations in advance. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I've traveled through Europe and I've gone to conferences in Europe and, you know, moving from Iran to Canada, we lived in the U.K. for a little while. And so I think when you're touched by all these different countries and people and backgrounds, you sort of actually 
it's helped me see that people are more similar than different, but we are each very different. But in terms of the hopes and dreams and the things we want, you know, we're very, very, very similar. But all of my clinical training, as well as my PhD, was were done in Canada. Okay. Okay. So neurodiversity, it sounds like really was a perspective that you were using without the, the name or the title or the label with your past work, with your studies, as you studied with your PhD. Where did you earn your PhD? At McGill University in Montreal. Okay. Okay. So how were you introduced to the concept? Or, now you, were, you already had the concept, but how were you introduced to the title neurodiversity or the, uh, the label neurodiversity? Oh, gosh, I don't even know exactly when it happened. I don't know if it was, I think it was around the time when Dr. Kasha and I were developing the proposal for the grant that we received to create NeuroAllies. And as we were reading, we were both reading, we were really looking at the more current literature. And that's really when I discovered that framework and the name and started to delve into the terminology. And also on social media, I was noticing that, you know, there were more and more autistic adults that were very present on social media and people were talking about neurodiversity and being different and that this was part of their identity as opposed to being something that they carried around with them. And so that term neurodiversity or that framework really came from a adults with autism themselves versus academia? Yes, that is my understanding has always been that it really came from the autistic community of adults who now had a really strong social media presence. They had written books on it. There were publishing articles about it, websites. And then through Dr. Kasha, I was actually introduced to Julie Julie Roberts. Roberts, who is a speech-language pathologist with the Neurodiversity Collective. Collective. And so that was about three years ago or so when I was introduced to her. And then I discovered Dr. Prezant's book, Uniquely Human, as well at a state conference convention presentation. He was the keynote speaker. So I got curious about his book. I picked it up and I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, this is all neurodiversity. <laughs> so really, that wasn't very long ago, four years. And then in that time, you both have started a neurodiversity program at Keene University, which we're going to talk about in another episode. But it, that is called NeuroAllies. Correct. Yes. Well, really, you've done a lot in a very little bit of time. So I look forward to diving into that. Okay. So the term neurodiversity originally came from adults with autism, but once it became a more widely understood framework, it really applies to many different populations. Can you talk a little bit about the other populations it applies to? Sure. I think that the core of neurodiversity, as Mashid said, is really that we're talking about a difference rather than a deficit or a disorder. And so there are so many areas that that can apply to. So for example, ADHD, dyslexia, autism. Yeah. So all of those diagnostic labels can fall under neurodiversity. All right. And now is this term a term that is being used obviously by adults who have autism, but is it also, and it's being used in academia, 
Is it being used in the schools, in the clinical setting? Like, is it, some, is it a term that we would teach our clients to use? Like, let's say we had an adolescent client who is either, let's say he's on the autism spectrum. Is that a term that you're actually teaching people to use as a way to identify themselves? So I think that, you know, as we said, like this is the terminology to us is fairly new within the last few years. We've really become more familiar with the terminology. And I think that it's the same for everyone. I don't think that there are a lot of SLPs in schools or out in practice that are necessarily familiar with all of the terminology that goes along with neurodiversity and and terms that we'll talk a little bit more about, like masking and ableism and, and things like that. These were terms that were new to us part of our neuro allies program that we're going to talk to you know talk about later we're really trying to teach these terms to our students so that our students can go out into the world and and start working with clients and with other SLPs and spread this knowledge because it is so new and i think pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people yeah i mean i would agree that i don't think currently i haven't to be fair to all the school based SLPs I can't possibly, you know, speak for all of them or know what's going on in all the schools. But my sense is that it is not very common in terms of the terminology being used among school-based speech-language pathologists. But certainly at Kane University, you know, our future speech-language pathologists will definitely be very familiar with the term because even though not all our students are in the NeuroAllies program, you know, in my developmental language disorders class, for example, I use the terminologies of neurotypical versus neurodivergent. I sort of talk about that terminology. I think the other key point to this too is that from my experience in speaking with SLPs who are out in practice in schools and private practices and even in medical settings, when I talk about neurodiversity, their immediate reaction is, oh my gosh, I totally agree with that. That's what I've been doing. I just didn't know there was a term for it or I didn't know what I was doing. So I think that everyone kind of the seed has been planted in our field. And I think people are doing this. They just don't even realize what they're doing. So I think that that's a key part of this is just making everyone aware of the labels that go along with it and understanding that this is part of a paradigm that they don't even know they're part of. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And Mary Beth, you asked, you know, whether with our clients, we sort of you know, suggest to them, you know, this is the terminology you should use. You know, with individuals on the autism spectrum, I, what we counsel our students and what I do as, a, as an instructor and as an SLP is I basically defer to the individual and ask them, do you want me to use person first language or do you want me to use identity first language? And if it's a young child, then we defer to the caregivers. I think just as with pronouns and just as with other terms, identities that people have, I think it's important to ask each individual person, how would you like me to refer, you know, to you? Uh, Would you like me to refer to you as autistic or would you like me to say a person with autism? Okay. Okay. I was thinking of it more in in terms of trying to educate other people, let's say peers at school or maybe in the workplace. So for example, a person with autism might need to be able to explain some of their differences or some of the different maybe accommodations that they would need in the workplace 
due to their neurodiversity. So I was, my question really was, it was, is it, is it a tool that you teach students or clients to empower themselves to be able to educate others on the way they think? Yeah. And I think that that kind of comes naturally when you start working with a client and you begin to understand how the client views themselves and what the client needs, then yes, like that is a conversation that can happen to help them be able to define their, like you're saying, their needs in the workplace or or Mm -hmm. their needs in another setting. But I think that the key is taking their lead and really kind of finding out where they are in their thought process and in their understanding of what their needs are. And yeah, certainly empowering them to talk about their strengths as opposed to explaining that I'm different and, you know, perhaps thinking of their, these wonderful strengths that they have as flaws or weaknesses, having the ability to focus on a task to the level of detail that some of our autistic individuals can do is an incredible strength for many potential jobs and even academic subjects. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So are there any situations where there could be counterindications for using a neurodiversity approach? I think it's going to be hard for us to come yeah. up with one. <laughs> Honestly, well, that, that tells me that we need to learn about neurodiversity, all of us. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine because we're talking about a framework where you are celebrating the individual. Yeah. You are focusing on their strengths. You are really listening to what it is they need from us. You know, you're sort of not forcing them to behave in neurotypical ways, right? That, for example, eye contact is not a requirement for letting people know you're listening. That my ADHD student might be listening, but fidgeting and looking around the room. But when I stop and ask, can you paraphrase what I just said to you? She'll be able to do it. So I think we have these neurotypical expectations of how communication should happen and how people should behave at all times. So I just honestly, I can't think of a a situation where it would be contraindicated. And I think, too, that, you know, kind of the flip side of the neurodiversity approach is really that behavior modification approach where you are trying to fix or train or extinguish a behavior or something along those lines. You know, I I say this, we say this to our students and we've said this before, there's not another group, whether that be a cultural group, any group of people that are identified either by their gender, by their race, by their culture, by anything that we have this expectation of, that we expect them to act and behave and look as though they're not part of that group. But for our autistic clients, that is often the demand or the request that's put on them is that they are trained to not look or act autistic. And neurodiversity is the complete opposite of that. So in my mind, I'm really hard pressed to come up with a a situation as well that I would think neurodiversity would not be the way to go. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, let's get into assessments and intervention a little bit here. Let's talk about how a neurodiversity approach 
is applied to assessments. And would you like to talk about early intervention assessments or elementary or adult? What would it make sense to apply it to at first? Or do you want to just brush on all three? Real quickly, I'll just talk a little bit. One of the classes that I teach here at Kane is a, a course on assessment. And we actually just had a very long conversation in my assessment class about this last week, where we're talking about typically what we do when we give a standardized assessment is we look at the scores and we determine goal areas based on weaknesses, right? This is kind of what we look at. We, we give an assessment and we say, oh, you know, this particular subtest or this particular category or this particular area is two standard deviations below the mean or one and a half standard deviations below the, below the mean. So this is an area we need to work on. And what our conversation, what I led the students to, you know, in the conversation to think about is are we going about this the wrong way? Like, let's give a standardized test. What if we looked at what their strengths are? What if we looked at the results of that standardized assessment and said, look at where they scored above the mean. And that needs to be our starting point. That needs to be our springboard, so to speak, that we kind of bounce from there to target some other areas. And I think that at least for my students, these are grad students, that was a surprising approach because they're so programmed to think about the deficits. They're so programmed to think about deficits and everything is a deficit, right? Like what do we need to work on? What do we need to fix instead of looking at what can they do and what can we build on from there? You know, we're kind of approaching assessment from the reverse perspective in that way. Which is a huge paradigm shift. It also begs the question of our justification for services, right? We have to hit those two standard deviations or what, you know, whatever it is in, in the particular school district or insurance it's company. true. Yeah, that's true. And I think too that you can, but I think approaching those areas that maybe were two standard deviations below through those areas of strength is a way to go. And also, this is what I tell students, you know, I sort of make sure they understand in the developmental language disorders class in their first semester that we have assessment, we have eligibility. So eligibility for services is something we have to do so that the person who needs whatever accommodations they need, whatever therapies they need, that they can receive them. But an assessment, to me, is something completely separate. And so as speech-language pathologists, what we need to do is that assessment report. And I know, you know, I speak of this, it's easy for me sitting, you know, it being in academia and in the classroom and not having to be out there in the schools with the caseloads that SLPs have and the rules that they have to follow. But it's almost like you need a separate report that's an assessment report, right, from the eligibility. And that assessment report can then focus on this strength-based approach to assessment. And I don't think it doesn't really matter if it's EI mm -hmm. or if it's adults with autism. And, you know, Armstrong 2012 has a really nice neurodiversity strengths checklist. And just to give you some examples, so there's personal strengths, there's communication strength, there's emotional strengths, social strengths, cognitive strengths, cultural strengths literacy, visual, spatial, physical, logical, 
musical and it goes on and on and on. So the point of it being that we have people who are musical, people who are more athletic, people who are really good with language and languages and people who have excellent visual spatial skills. And actually as a speech language pathologist, if I know those things about my client, it will actually help me to help them access what they need to access, do what they need to do, promote those skills, help them to, you know, steer them in that direction so that with the mindset that eventually this child has to become an adult who can live as independently as possible and have a job and, you know, do the things they want to do in life. And Dr. Present talks about having a long view so that, you know, even when you're working with a three-year-old, try to imagine where they need to be years down the road. And, you know, you know, individuals with ADHD have this very diffused kind of attentional style. And they often are, people often assume that they're not attending or listening or processing. But in fact, they're often processing so fast that they are getting sort of, quote unquote, bored because the world doesn't move as fast as their brains do. And so, in fact, they make incredible creative people. A lot of our artists and musicians and entrepreneurs are individuals with ADHD. Dyslexics have the ability to visualize very clearly in three dimensions. I can barely see a picture in my head. (laughs) So, So I think that's kind of what you know, so it's that having a strength, looking for the good instead of finding the fault. Look, it's easy to find faults. It's actually right, harder right. to find the well, strength. Well, just speaking of, you know, the reports that we write, in, when we include strengths, usually it's a sentence or two. And using Armstrong's approach, you could have a couple paragraphs about that. Wouldn't that be so nice when a parent is reading a report to really know that the clinician, whether it be an SLP, OT, or PT, that they're really focusing on their child's strengths and going to use those strengths to help in the other areas. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly the conversation that we had in class last week. And and it was like, I just watched the whole classroom full of light bulbs start to go off. It was great. And and just for them to really start thinking. And I, and I always say to them, you know, like every report that you write, you should be thinking, what if this were my family member? How would I interpret this? What would I want to read? What is important to me to know? And what you're saying is exactly that, right? Like as a family member, we want to know that someone's noticing the strengths and focusing on what our child or our family member can do rather than what they can't do. Mm -hmm. And so much about knowing those strengths is building the rapport with that client. So they'll want to do, you know, some of the things that are harder to do when we're focusing on their strengths. Let's go back to early intervention. And so at that point, you're you're working, you know, more with the caregivers. So how would you use a toddler's strengths, which might not be in communication or not in verbal communication, to help develop their communication skills? I've done a lot of work in early intervention. I love early intervention just because you get to work with the adults and the kids and mm-hmm. they're in a natural environment, which I think is so much fun. A lot of times, you know, parents have been bombarded at the point when you get to them when their child is two or three years old, where they've heard so much negative that 
all they see is the negative, like, and everything they see is related to the autism or to the diagnosis sometimes. But you can see that behind that, like they know, like when you dig, they see all these amazing, wonderful things about their child that nobody has seen. So I think it's coming, you know, I think it's initially just sort of shifting that for them and asking them to tell you about all the things their child can do. You know, I, as opposed to tell me all the things your child cannot do, tell me all the things your child can do. Oh, he's looking over at the banana when he wants a banana. That's so cool. That's great. He's communicating to you, asking them, you know, what are your wishes and hopes like for your child? What is it you want them to be able to do or say to you? You know, focusing on, you know, creating like that, whether it's the home environment, the daycare environment that, uh, you know, what Armstrong refers to as positive niche construction that where the environment, let's focus on the environment and see how that can be more supportive of your child so that they can do the things they need to do, communicate the things they need to communicate. You know, we all can look, quote unquote, disabled in the right context, right? If you put me in a room and you tell me to sing, I'm going to look like I have a disability, right? We could share that one. <laughs> That's why I didn't, I love voice, but couldn't go into it because I right. am tone deaf. Yes. <laughs> right. So, you know, and, and Dr. Gertner, our audiologist would say there is no such thing as tone deafness. So I loved hearing that. But, <laughs> well, yes, you know, actually, I will uh, call back to one of my professors in grad school who said that. And he said, I've always been able to get anyone to match a tone. And I said, I raised my hand. I went up to the front of the class for about two minutes. And then he said, we'll talk about this later and had me sit back down. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, the, the point being that, you know, I think I sound fine, but everybody else will be looking at me like, OK, you need to stop singing. Right. So we can all look disabled. So if we choose to, but, but based on the environment. So if somebody is going to force me, well, no, you have to become a better singer. No, you have to be able to sing. But it's not, I'm just a singing in the shower kind of person. I'm not, I don't want to be on a stage. I don't, and I think that's what happens to our little kiddos. Like we get so focused on, let's fix them. Let's make sure they can do all the things that the neurotypical world expects of them instead of, wait, they're doing this, this, and this. What is it that, you know, what, how can we change the environment and the people, you know, how can we support the people interacting with them so that we can help them to continue to develop and grow in the ways that they need to, to accomplish the things they want to accomplish, as opposed to the things I want them to accomplish. Right. So you're really focusing on that individual and their strengths, changing the environment to help them use those strengths in order to, am I incorrect to say, in order to help them with their challenges? Does a neurodiverse approach still focus on, I could say, help with challenges or, or help with deficits? Is that from a neurodiverse perspective, is that something that I should not say? So I think that in addition to the strength-based, we've been talking a lot about strength-based approach, but neurodiversity encompasses other things as well, which we haven't really talked too, too much about yet. But I think that at the core, it's about developing intrinsic motivation for the client mm -hmm. rather than extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key component. And as therapists, as SLPs, our role is not to undo mm -hmm. and change what it is they need to do to self-regulate and to mm -hmm. function. And 
any type of therapy that it contains a behavior modification component is is going to take that approach, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, this child is flapping their hands and we don't want them to do that because that doesn't look quote, normal or neurotypical. So we have to undo that. We have to extinguish that behavior where the neurodiversity approach is, you know what, if he's flapping his hands, he probably needs to flap his hands for some reason. That's helping him to self-regulate. And who are we to say Mm -hmm. that that is not, quote, normal? Mm -hmm. To him, that's very normal. And to him, that's not just normal, but necessary for functioning. So I think it's really looking at, you know, the, the strengths, the strength-based approach is one component, but really looking at the whole child and realizing that every behavior is a means of communication. And it is our job as SLPs to figure out what it is they're communicating to us and not just extinguish the behavior, because by extinguishing the behavior, we could be extinguishing their communication to us. Right, right. And their ability to self-regulate. And back to what Masheed had said about us all looking disordered at some point, imagine something that helps. So it helps me self-regulate to have a clean, neat, organized environment. So let's say that someone said that I could no longer do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Literally would take away my self-regulation. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is a very interesting perspective. Okay. Yeah, and and just as a just as an analogy that uh, you know maybe some people can you know relate to this analogy too is you know when I when I hear often the question well but you know if they have if the child has both languages in the home you know that's going to cause confusion that you know that can't be good you know and I'll I'll sort of say well are you right-handed or left-handed. So the person will say, I'm right-handed. Say, okay, what if I tie your right hand behind your back for 24 hours and the only you only have permission to use your left hand? And then they're like, oh, that would be hard. Right. So when you take one of those languages away, that's essentially what you're doing. Because this is not a language that the child is just learning in school. This is a language of their home, their parents, their ancestors, their relatives. And so you're, in fact, making it harder. Right. So that's another kind of example of something that is part of that person we're taking away. Right. And then expecting them to function. Absolutely. That's an excellent example. The other piece to that, too, is that, you know, as our autistic clients are becoming adults and able to communicate so much with us, and and we're seeing this in a lot of research, we're finding that the number of autistic adults, there was one study that was done by Kupferstein in 2018, found that 46% of adults who had had behavior modification therapy as children now meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD because of the amount of emphasis that was put on trying to undo these self-regulation things that they needed to do. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It's crushing to think of all the well-meaning therapists, you know, any of us who've tried approaches that could actually cause someone uh, PTSD as an adult is, it is absolutely heartbreaking. If you took my morning coffee away from me, I would have PTSD. Well, and I say this to students, this is how I explain to the students. I say, like, think about the things that you need to get through your day. Like you said before, you need a clean desk, right? Like I need to listen to music when I work. I have music on all the time. That's how I function. If someone were to say to me, you can't listen to music anymore until you reply to five emails 
then you can listen to music for three minutes, right? That's not doing it for me. Like that's not going to help me get through my day. So what we're finding through the research is that adults are autistic adults that are now sharing their experiences are saying that they, as adults are hesitant to share with other people, the things that they enjoy most, the things that they really love, because those were the things that were then taken from them and used as extrinsic motivators. Uh. Instead of just being the thing that helps you get through your day, like your morning coffee or your clean desk or the music that you listen to. Uh, you are really making a great argument for neurodiversity. We, we need neurodiversity and we, we need it now. So what else is, should we know about neurodiversity? I was just going to say that I think the terminology that we use is also really important. So, you know, we've already talked about, you know, talking about difference versus disorder, um, asking the person about what, whether they want to be a person with or, or an autistic individual moving from, you know, we still celebrate, you know, in many places, autism acceptance, right? We're really, uh, excuse me, autism awareness, where really we should be talking about autism acceptance at this point. Acceptance is not awareness. Where we are, you know, instead of talking about obsessions, talking about, again, I have to credit Dr. Prezant, talking about enthusiasms, right? These are enthusiasms. They're not obsession. I love that. I, that changes the whole picture. Yeah, and I and I always say, I mean, my my daughter hears this all the time. My students hear this all the time. Words matter, right? How we what words we use matter. It affects the way people think and it affects the way we view other people. You know, instead of um, talking about stimming, as Dr. Kasha said, coping strategies. Um, instead of symptoms, talking about traits, because a symptom is something then that you have to get rid of. But a trait is, this is part of who I am. You know, I have curly hair. The number of times, you know, hairdressers have felt they needed to tell me that I can get my hair straight. <laughs> quite annoying because it's like, this is like my identity, you know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I feel strange when my hair is straight. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel strange when mine is curly. That, that's my, my daughter wanted to curl my hair one night and she did. And then I was like, but this is not me. I, I got to straighten it. So and my daughter yeah. was four the first time she saw me with my straight, you know, blow dried straight. I came to pick her up at daycare. She goes, she just looked at me with fear on her face. And she's like, mom, you don't look like you. I'm like, okay, never going to do this again. And then instead of nonverbal, non-speaking, because there are so many stories of autistic individuals that we know of who they never learned to speak. But in fact, if they had had a professional in their life when they were young attempt to have them, let me just put some words in front of them and see what happens. Let me show them a letter board and see what happens. And these are individuals who are, there was actually a, there's a Sunday morning. I was trying to have this conversation with a group of our students. I couldn't think of them, but there's a Sunday morning news show that I, that I always like to watch. And they were featuring an autistic adult who gave, you know, he had created the whole piece on his own at, by writing it all out and then having the computer speak it for him. Gifted, right? I mean, there are autistic individuals who have written whole entire books. But Very interesting. Speak. So they're and not they're, actually, they're not actually speaking using their vocal cords to speak. They're not speaking. They're very verbal. 
and verbally gifted. Yes, exactly. And then instead of using terms like high functioning, low functioning, we're looking at individuals level, individual levels of support. Because again, somebody who is quote unquote high functioning, when you say that, it gives the impression that they don't need support. But in fact, if they aspire to be a lawyer, then in fact, they might need more individual, a higher level of support than someone who, you know, is closer. We might call them quote unquote low functioning, but they may not need us. So individualized levels of support instead of using high functioning, low functioning. So high functioning is not a term that we would used to describe someone without, we would just say, this person needs a certain level of support. Yes. Correct. Yes. Some and other, Dr. Kasha has some others. Yeah. Some other things too, that are, you know, kind of key components. One of the terms that's used quite often in the neurodiversity framework is the idea of masking, which is basically any goal that we have that we are expecting the autistic person to put on a mask and not be autistic. So any goal that we're expecting them to look or behave in a manner that is not consistent with their autism is considered a masking goal. And we want to avoid those. And the other term that is used quite often in neurodiversity is the term ableism or ableist goals, which basically means I view myself as a person who is able to do these things. And I view this client as someone who is not. And therefore, I should determine what the goals are for this person. And I should determine what they should be doing. That would be an ableist perspective. I'm able, you're not able. So therefore, I get to decide what you're going to work on and what you're going to do. So I'm going to put you in a social skills group. And I'm going to tell you how to behave. And I'm going to script a a conversation for you because I know better because I'm able. So we want to avoid that as well. Some of the other things, you know, strength-based we talked about, um, intrinsic motivation we talked about. Another one is that we continue to use very robust AAC with the clients, regardless of any prerequisite skills that we may or may not think they should have. Many times AAC assessments and AAC systems, like you're expecting a certain prerequisite skill set to be in place before you introduce a certain AAC system. The neurodiversity framework basically says, don't think in terms of those prerequisite skills because skills can be very scattered. And the idea is introduce as much and as many different types of AAC as possible to see what it is that the client will connect with. Maybe they connect immediately with something more high tech that we would originally think to hold off on until they master the low tech. So we don't want to put those kind of restraints on them. So in other words, if you focus on the prerequisite skills of like like a PEC system, they are having limited success, you're wasting time or using your precious time of development with that child in a way that's not productive. Whereas if you went to one of the higher tech systems at it instead of focus continuing to focus on that PEC system, they might actually be drawn to that and be able to use that even though they had no interest in the PEC system. Right. Just because they're not doing the low tech system doesn't mm-hmm. mean they can't do the high tech system. Mm-hmm. It's not a hierarchy. Introduce as much as you can to see what it is that they connect with and that they're able to uh, use. Yeah. And also given that like two, you know, autistic individuals can often because decoding is very patterned, 
there's a pattern. And so they learn to decode and learn to read, and they may not be speaking at all. And I have had several little ones over the years where, because my, when I introduce pictures, I always have the words underneath. Like by default, I always put the words underneath. And I'm not talking about sentences and paragraphs, but if I am, you know, using, for example, pictures to help them communicate, I'll have a, the word ball, but underneath it, the word ball will be typed. And the number of times I've noticed, you know, the several, several kids where they will start to actually decode the words and connect the word with the picture and the object. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going to put these words on post-its and see if they can match it to the objects in the room. And they actually can. And so I think it's sort of that idea of presuming competence, like mm -hmm. just coming from a place of, you know what, you're a lot more competent than I think you are. There's a lot more in there that I just have to be able to, to access. And Dr. Kashat uh, touched on social skills groups. And, you know, that's kind of related to this double empathy problem that I think is also related to assessment intervention that we should probably mention, which was put forward by Damian Milton, who is a scientist and scholar and a professor. And he, found, he, he got his diagnosis of Asperger's as an adult once his son was diagnosed with autism at the age of two. And so he talks about this double empathy problem in that if you put, and what that basically means is that when we put our autistic individuals, which is typically what happens in a social skills group all by themselves, and then we have a therapist who is neurotypical, you know, scripting for them how to communicate. Well, autistic, the research, the double empathy research shows that autistic individuals are very capable of communicating with one another. The communication breakdown happens when you have an autistic individual and a neurotypical individual communicating. And so really what we should be doing is helping our neurotypical individuals understand better how to communicate with our autistic individuals, right? It should be sort of a more of a collaborative reciprocal thing where they each are learning about each other as opposed to putting all of their responsibility on the shoulders of the autistic individuals. Okay. So would you still possibly use a social skills group, but just use a different makeup of the group, like, you know, half neurotypical, half neurodiverse? This is what I would do. I would find out the interests, right, of a group of, let's say, you know, 10th graders, right? And we have some autistic individuals in the 10th grade at a particular school. I would find out their interests of, of my autistic clients. I would find out if there are other, if there are neurotypical students who have a similar interest. So, and then group them according to their interest and then facilitate interactions and communication with one another around an interest. Because in, a, in the real world, when we come together as groups, like I don't necessarily become friends with everybody. And I'm sure there are many people who wouldn't want to be my friend, right? We make friends with the people that we have some things in common with. And so functionally, why would I ever be in a room full of people, right? And trying to learn how to communicate with them if I'm not ever going to really hang out with them. I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. It makes sense yeah. to me, but I don't know. Maybe Joanne can say it better than I did. No, that makes sense. And I think the whole concept of social skills training, just that word training mm -hmm. is an ableist concept, right? Like 
I am the neurotypical person in this room. Therefore, I know, you know, the way, the correct and appropriate way to interact with each other. And I'm going to teach you how to do that. That's what we want to stay away from. Because as Mashid said, you know, this double empathy concept has shown that two individuals with autism, they can interact with each other just fine. Two individuals who are neurotypical, they can interact with each other just fine. One person who's neurotypical and another person who's neurodiverse, that's where the breakdown happens. So that breakdown is not just on one person. That breakdown is on two people. There are two people as part of that communication dyad. And so both of those parties need to understand the other one. And that's really the difference between the neurodiversity approach to social interactions as opposed to social skills training, where we take all the, the individuals with autism and we train them to, to interact in a neurotypical way. In a neurotypical way. Right. So really, as far as intervention goes, we need to educate neurotypical people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. And how do you recommend that we as therapists do that? And just as we, I, we, Sometimes we, we, this is a podcast for speech language pathologists, but sometimes we have parents and other people listening. So as far as SLPs go and, and, and people in general, what do you suggest that we do to educate ourselves as well as other people? Like, let's take a 10th grade class because we do like to focus on young adults. So a 10th grade class at a school of 100 kids, and we have five who identify themselves as autistic. How do we educate the rest of the class? Yeah. So, I mean, think about what we have been doing in the past. Like, what have we been doing in the past? We've been sitting with those five and Mm -hmm. saying, here's what you need to do to behave appropriately in this classroom. So why are we not sitting with the rest of them and saying, here's what these five are doing and here's why they're doing it. They're doing it because they need to do it to function through the day. And our role as their friends and their classmates and their peers is to understand and be supportive rather than tell them that they need to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am agreeing with you. I'm just thinking of how the best way to do is this is neurodiversity interwoven into the curriculum. I mean, I mean, yes, that would be awesome. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, of my classroom of, you know, incoming MA students who take developmental language disorders with me. I simply have changed the words I use. Mm -hmm. So I no longer say things like, you know, normal development I never used anyway. I always said typical development because I think that's more accurate, normal, not sure what normal is. But, you know, so I will talk about neurotypicals versus neurodivergent individuals, right? If we're talking about, you know, if I'm sort of giving an example of of an analogy, I will default to they instead of saying he, she, you know, so I'll just default to they. So I think in an ideal world, (laughs) we could weave it into the curriculum. But I'm just thinking, you know, I have a high school student now. So I think it helps me to picture the things that, you know, they're doing in their classrooms and in their schools. You know, schools have clubs. They have all of these different types of clubs, right, where students gather. Well, that's a great opportunity. They're gathering together around something that they all believe in, an interest that they all have. So, you know, the faculty advisors of those clubs can certainly facilitate that kind of perspective that we're all different. 
You know, we all have coping strategies. You know, I certainly in, in the developmental language disorders class, like I'll, you know, I actually, I'm sorry, not in that class, but in the first autism class they take, I really just start with, you know, tell me, you know, when you get upset, like, what does that look like for you? What do you do to calm down? What kinds of things make you anxious? What is something that you do that's a little bit of a quirk? You know, and then as they, as the students share all their examples, I kind of go, so we really are all on this continuum. You know, we don't have, you know, as again, as Dr. Prezant says, you know, autistic behaviors are just human behaviors. We see flapping in young children who aren't speaking yet. You know, we see all of these behaviors in people. It's just that they are sometimes more pronounced in autistic individuals because they don't have, they're not able to always emotionally regulate. And sometimes because we don't allow them, they're not always able to communicate their needs and so on and so forth. So I don't know. I think, I think that ideally it's, we have to change the language of like, I think the teachers, like if we educate the teachers and the child study teams and so on, I think they can then have a bigger impact on the students without us having to, you know, sort of say, well, so-and-so is neurodivergent. And so this is what they do, which is kind of like, you know, that used to be the way that, you know, you introduce the child to the class and you let them know that they're different. And as opposed to, well, we're all actually, we're all different. We're all a little neurodivergent. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That is very helpful. Now, are you able to provide the list of the words that you used as part of the handout today? Because I think that would be really helpful to our listeners. Yes, absolutely. We can put the, you know, we have a terminology page that we can certainly provide, like a yes, no as a handout. There's another one that compares a deficit-based to a strength-based. So it's like a chart that has like a, a t- it's a table. So I think that okay. I hand out like a one, one pagers, just trying to think of the one pagers. And then there are resources. Like we have two pages of resources. There's blogs, websites, research articles, things like Ted talks, YouTube videos, and then books, you know, for people who want to read books. And many of those books are written by autistic individuals. Excellent. Well, that will be very helpful to our listeners and anyone who wants to understand neurodiversity. And hopefully that's everyone, right? Yes, hopefully. hopefully. Yes. <laughs> now we have a few more minutes before we go. Is there anything that you wanted to add? Anything that we didn't touch upon that you think is integral to understanding neurodiversity? Honestly, I think it comes down to you know what we said before is just always remembering that every behavior is communication. And by extinguishing behaviors, we're extinguishing communication. I think that's a really big component to what we're teaching our students here. And also just seek to understand the person. Yeah. Like listen with your eyes and your ears to understand the person as opposed to labeling them with all kinds of negative words. Okay. And one more thing for all the listeners who are listening and as they are listening, they're thinking, oh, you know what? I was working with a client a few years ago or yesterday, and I really may have been using more of an approach that really was not effective. 
I really need to change and, you know, use more of a neurodivergent approach or stop doing whatever that is. Do you have any words of encouragement to people who have, they're seeing this paradigm shift, but recognizing that what they had done in the past might not have been as helpful? I think that we make our decisions as professionals, as SLPs, we make our decisions based on the research, right? Like, you know, evidence-based practice, this is how we operate. And for many, many years, the research was supporting that type of approach, right? Behavior modification and extrinsic motivators and things like that. I don't think that it's fair necessarily to have for someone to beat themselves up over, over decisions that they made that were based on things that they had read or research that they had found. But I think that, you know, as professionals and SLPs, we continue to grow and we continue to learn and Mm -hmm. new research is showing us new things. And I think we need to be open to that and especially open to listening to our autistic adults who are sharing their stories with us and we were following what we thought was the gold standard of therapy. And now we're learning that there, you know, there's an alternative to that and that it's a pretty powerful alternative. So I wouldn't get so caught up in what I didn't do or did possibly what I think might be wrong based on the information that I had at the time, but just moving forward and knowing that there are a lot of new things to learn. And, you know, there was a time when, you know, we thought facilitated communication was an appropriate approach, right? We learned it's not. And we so we've put it away. And yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I I hope people, I hope our colleagues don't, you know, beat themselves up about anything that they may have done in the past. But I think as long as we approach our work, you know, as lifelong learners, and that we're constantly learning, and I say this to each other all the time, we feel like we're still learning. And there's so much about this framework that we still don't know. Well, thank you so much for sharing what you do know and the insight and perspective and information about neurodiversity. This will really help SLPs in assessment and intervention. And we did mention the NeuroAllies program, and you're going to be returning soon to talk about that. So for our listeners, there's more to come on an episode coming soon. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.